0: by listening to Proof: Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. There were two more murders, fifteen miles when away. They found the the a by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird of When a child goes missing, the world goes into a frenzy, especially when the baby belongs to a well-known family. On May twelfth, nineteen thirty-two, the search for the Lindbergh baby tragically ended. So, if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. On March 1st, 1932, around 7.30 p.m., the Lindbergh family was alerted by their son's nurse that the baby was nowhere to be found. Famous aviator Charles Lindbergh went into the child's room and found a strange note sitting on the windowsill. This poorly spelled ransom note demanded $50,000 for the safe return of the 20-month-old baby. At the bottom of the note was a symbol that contained two interconnected blue circles surrounded by a red circle with a hole punched into the middle and on both sides. Not knowing what to make of the note and the strange symbol, Charles took his gun and went around the grounds. He and the butler of the home found impressions on the ground beneath the window, as well as a cleverly designed wooden ladder and the baby's blanket. The police were called, as well as the family's trusted attorney. The police arrived and immediately began conducting an extensive search of the home and the surrounding area. No fingerprints were found on anything the kidnappers may have touched, and due to the lack of shoe prints, they theorized that the men wore cloth on the soles of their shoes. These were, it seemed, men who knew what they were doing. Word of the kidnapping of a prominent family spread quickly, and before long, the home was overrun by friends and curious onlookers, which meant that any and all footprint evidence that may be outside of the home was destroyed. Well-connected friends of the Lindberghs, like military colonels, lended any help they could, and Charles used his influence to control the direction of the investigation. Basically, he took charge and left the police with their hands tied. They contacted people with mom connections, thinking this may have ties to organized crime, even getting a hold of men like Al Capone, who offered to help with the return in exchange for money or legal favors. In the meantime, the FBI, still in its infancy, was authorized to investigate the case, and the New Jersey officials announced a $25,000 reward for the boys' safe return. The Lindbergh family offered an additional $50,000, and calls began flooding in at the news of such a large sum of money in the midst of the Great Depression. On March 6th, a new ransom letter appeared at the Lindbergh home. This time, they raised the ransom amount to $70,000. $70,000 possibly in connection with the award announcement, and stated that a man named John Condon should be the intermediary between the two parties. John was, at the time, a well-known Bronx personality and retired school teacher. On his own, he offered a $1,000 reward if the kidnapper turned the child over to a Catholic priest. He, too, received a letter bearing the same symbol naming him as the intermediary. As instructed, once the money was ready, they placed an ad in the New York American and waited for further instruction. A meeting was scheduled at the Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx, and John met with a foreign-sounding man that made sure to stay in the shadows. According to this man, his name was John, and he was a Scandinavian sailor and part of the five-person gang who kidnapped the Lindbergh baby. That the two women in the group were caring for the baby on a boat, and he would send the baby's sleeping suit to prove that he was telling the truth. On March 16th, a sleeping suit belonging to the baby was sent along with, by now, the seventh ransom note. It was time to deliver the money. On April 1st, John Condon received a letter stating what time he should meet with the money. In an effort to keep track of the money, the box was a custom-made piece, easily identified, and a number of gold certificates, which were out of circulation and would draw attention once used, and bills that had their serial numbers recorded. The drop-off was made on the 2nd, and John was given a note saying that the child was in the care of two innocent women on a boat in Martha's Vineyard named Nellie. But when the search for the infant was turned to the vineyard, the baby was nowhere to be found. No one would know what happened to the Lindbergh baby until May 12th, when, quite by accident, a delivery driver pulled on the side of the road to relieve himself and found the body of a toddler. He called the police and the family was notified. His skull had been badly fractured, more than likely from a blow to the head, and his body decomposed. It was clear that this was a rushed burial and that animals had been scavenging on the remains. Charles Lindbergh quickly insisted that the remains be cremated. By June of 1932, there was suspicion that this was an inside job perpetrated by someone the family knew, or someone in the family itself. Suspicion fell on a British servant named Violet Sharp after she gave contradictory information regarding her whereabouts the night of the baby's disappearance. She ended her life under the scrutiny of suspicion, heavy-handed approach by officers, and possibility of losing her job. After her death, her alibi was confirmed. John Condon himself became a suspect, but Charles stood by the man who helped his family. Later, John became known for his overdramatic actions following the case, which included stopping a city bus en route to chase a man he claimed was the one he met with. He also appeared in a vaudeville act about the kidnapping. And, just as the case seemed to stall, there was a new development regarding the ransom money. By presidential order, all gold certificates had to be exchanged by May of 1993. Just days before the deadline, a man brought $2,980 to the bank to exchange. The bills were those from the ransom. He given the name J.J. Faulkner and an address, but when the police went to check, no such man lived there. Then random bills from the ransom seemed to appear all around New York City many along the route of the Lexington Avenue subway, which connected to a neighborhood known for its German-Austrian population. Then, on September 18, 1934, a Manhattan teller found a gold certificate with a New York license plate number penciled in the bill's margin. It was traced back to a gas station, and the manager said he wrote down after the customer acted suspicious. The plates belonged to Richard Hauptmann, an immigrant with a criminal record in Germany. He was arrested and, on his person, was a $20 gold certificate and over $14,000 in ransom money was found in his garage. It seemed like they finally caught their guy, but, according to Richard, the money was left to him by a friend and former business partner named Isidore Fish, who was, as of March 29, 1934, dead that after he learned of the man's death, he opened the shoebox he left and saw that it contained a considerable amount of money that, after a business deal with Isidore, he felt he was owed. But he had a very vague excuse for why police found a notebook in his home that contained a sketch of what looked remarkably like the ladder used to get into the Lindbergh home, as well as wood that matched the same ladder in his attic. He also had John Condon's phone number penciled on a wall in his closet. During the trial of the century, one that still gives people pause, Richard Hauptmann was found guilty on multiple convictions and sentenced to die. Despite his many appeals and claims that he was innocent, he was sent to the electric chair on April 3, 1936. Since the case's conclusion, many have given differing opinions on the case. Some agree that Richard Hoffman was the killer. Others state that he was innocent and was the product of incompetent police work, false confessions, weakness in his counsel, and circumstantial evidence. And those that believe he is innocent have theories of who the actual killer is. One such theory is that Charles himself accidentally killed his son in a prank gone wrong, where he dropped the young boy on his head.